Get Advisor Fit with Olivia Looper, a series of interviews with financial consultants and industry experts helping financial advisors strategize, market, and grow their business using core fitness values and analogies. Do something today that your future self will thank you for with Get Advisor Fit. Here's your host, Olivia Looper. Hello, and welcome back to Get Advisor Fit. I'm your host, Olivia Looper, the founder and chief content writer of Lexicon Content Development, which we do writing and marketing for financial advisors. And today, I am so pleased to have with me Derek Pollard of Consular Creative. Now, you might be wondering why I'm so excited, and it's because he's also a writer, which means we could probably sit here for three hours and talk about writing for financial advisors, amongst other things, probably solve some of the world's problems, but we won't bore you with all of that. What we are going to do today is give you some insight into what we do, how we help, how the process of writing for a financial advisor works. So let me tell you a little bit more about Derek really quickly. He's the founder of Consular Creative also a content writer, like I mentioned, who helps clients say it and write it just like they need. He also has 20 plus years of experience as a college professor and 30 plus years in editing and publishing. So this guy, he knows what he's talking about, writing about. He knows what he's writing about. <laughs> because as we'll tell you in a few minutes, speaking is not our forte, okay? We're better at putting it on the page. But let me... Let me shut my mouth and let me let Derek uh, speak for a moment. Derek, thank you so much for joining me. I love chatting with you. Thank you for being here. Oh, goodness. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm thrilled about this. And if this is like any of our previous conversations, it's going to be a blast. Um, And I say that in part because, as you mentioned, it's really not often as content writers, we get a chance to talk with other people who kind of come at this is writers first. And I I just kind of want to make that distinction. We're we're still talking about writing. It's just that you and I have a background in in literature and literary writing. And I think that that gives us an an interesting window into the work that we do. And we may find ourselves talking a bit about the art of content writing uh, and why the common wisdom is that those two things generally don't go together, or that may be another episode entirely. But um, I think we will wind up at least solving one or two of the world's problems, but they're going to be very local. And and those have to do with our listeners and some of the problems that they encounter, specifically just not feeling like they can use their words to do everything that they're intending to do. And so I'm really excited about just kind of digging into this. Yeah, absolutely. So before we do that, because I'm really anxious to get into it, we have a lot of great stuff planned out for you guys. Um, why don't you just really quickly tell us how you got into the advisor space and uh, how it's going? I think it's it's a truism for most of us. Um, and, and I say this because, again, I think it's one of our distinguishers. Uh, this is not what I set out to do as a writer, right? Um <laughs> But here's the thing, in finding my way to it, and I, I, I do wanna just kind of speak a little to that, in finding my way to it, I found that it is one of the most rewarding uh, ways of going about writing and, and one of the most rewarding areas of writing that I've been engaged in. And again, I'm coming at this with a background in literary writing in editing and publishing and teaching. So I know my way around, 
Um, it's been an absolute thrill to start to learn about the financial services industry, to start talking with financial advisors, and to really get a sense of who their clients are and what their particular concerns are, um, and, and finding ways to create messaging that really resonates um, and, and creates connections between people and ideas. Right? This is not new. Right? I've been doing this in a college classroom for a really long time. It's just really interesting to, to, to find ways to, to create a different approach and a different way of empowering other people. So um, it, it's an absolute thrill. And I do want to say, too, what led me here, other than the fates, right, as is the case throughout my life, um, they have guided me in exactly the right direction and pointed me to exactly the right people, case in point, right? Uh, I am so thrilled that, that we've gotten to know one another. Um, but uh, instrumental in all of this for me was a very dear and old friend, someone you yourself know and your listeners know, uh, Matt Halloran at Proudmouth. Um, I had been talking with him at the height of the pandemic about my ambivalence for the work that I was doing in higher ed at the time. It just felt, uh, the, it felt a little institutional. It felt a little moribund. Uh, this is not to, to, to critique or, or try to tear down our, our educational system in this country, although one could argue that might not be a bad idea, um, <laughs> that there may be other ways to go about it that reach people where they're at more effectively. I will say where I'm teaching right now, because I don't envision ever getting away from it. I love it too much. It's too important to me. Again, empowering other people is at the heart of everything I do. And to be able to facilitate aha moments, to give people a clearer sense of the importance and the value of their writing and the change they can make as being more effective, more persuasive, more impassioned writers, uh, that's incredible. I can't ever see not doing that. Where I'm teaching now, I absolutely love it. And, and they happen to be driving a change in the industry for the better. Um, but in talking to, to Matt, I had expressed some of this and uh, he said, look, we have a couple of, of projects here at Proudmouth that you might be really interested in. Let me talk to Kirk, um, the, the other co-founder. Let me talk to the team and see what opportunities there are. And uh, through that conversation, I started working with, with the writing team at Proudmouth. They are phenomenal, by the way. And uh, it gave me entry into a field that, again, I didn't envision myself necessarily occupying or, or, or moving into, but I am so glad that that door opened. And uh, I've been, as I've said, thrilled to be learning about the industry and helping others communicate more effectively in that space. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I am always fascinated to see how people got into it, especially, you know, with us as with the academic background and then moving into a business oriented space. It's very different. Actually, it's funny because uh, just right before spring break, FAU, where I went and got my graduate degree, yeah. uh, the graduate program reached out to me and wants, you know, is is doing a graduate uh, presentation for uh, alumni and who have gone off and done other things besides academia. So they're kind of gathering all of us together to come give a presentation on how we've put, you know, our education to you. So what we are doing with our English degrees. And like you said, I never thought I would end up here. And especially because of the word marketing, which seems so 
anti-writing, right? Writing is supposed to be one of the most creative, one of the most authentic things that you can do as a human being and express yourself. But when it's paired with marketing, you'd almost think that somehow, and there is content writing in the marketing world that just sucks and just serves the purpose of selling for lack of a better word at the moment. Um, but it can, the writing in the financial advisor space for the purpose of generating business can still be authentic and it still can be truthful and empower people with knowledge, empower both the advisors and their ability to use words to generate business and empower the, 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 the C and B to C, the consumer, the client, um, in learning about how financial planning would basically benefit their lives. So thank you. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm always interested to see how people got from how we got here. (laughs) Well, and I think it's, you know, the truth is, again, you've said something that I think is so important. Um, And and I think that's the bridge between what we would call loosely creative writing and the type of writing that you and I do for clients, right? This this content and, and copy driven writing. The bridge there is in piquing people's curiosity, right? And that does involve creativity. There is, you know, for all of the pushback that I'm going to get for this, there is an art to the work that we do. It is at its best, right? When we really elevate our content, when we really wind up creating messaging that connects people to one another, that's the result of a creative activity and what we're doing there in in creating that spark and I, I do want to talk a bit about the, the assumptions that we often bring to marketing and to, to the type of content and copywriting that you and I are doing and talking about, right? But creating that spark, that changes everything, right? And in that word that, that we seem to be using, and I think we'll come back to it again, empowerment, giving people the tools to not only feel more confident, to, but then to go out themselves and share that experience and knowledge with other people, in a sense, right, at, at its best, we're writing ourselves out of a job and yeah. we're teaching ourselves out of a job. Because if we really wind up giving our clients what they need and connecting them with their audience, then, then we've facilitated a conversation. We've facilitated a dialogue. And as is the case with podcasting, when it's not scripted, right, which is one of the reasons that this podcast continues to grow and draw people's attention, right? When it's not scripted, what we're doing is creating a space for people to make change happen, right? And that's really, really cool. It's really exciting. And it's artful because it gives people the opportunity to become creative problem solvers. And that's, it doesn't get any better than that, right? No, no. And it's, it's interesting, creative problem solver element in, because as sometimes an advisor will come to me and say, you know, well, if you don't have a background in financial services, how do you know all this stuff? And I said, well, honestly, I think it's because of, my background in higher education, you become a creative problem solver. That's basically how you get through graduate school, right? You read, you teach yourself research, 
digest, make it into something new or unique or find a perspective that no one has had yet, build connections that people haven't made connections with yet. I mean, if you can, if you can become a creative problem solver, you can do anything. And you and can write we, about everything. And, and, and there we have it, solving the world's problems, yeah. right? And <laughs> I think that one of the things too, and you know, again, one of the ways that, that I, I think our approach to doing the work we're doing with the backgrounds that we have is that even before we found ourselves writing content and copy, right? Doing the work of marketing. I don't know about you, but I will certainly speak to my own experience here. For those 20 plus years, give or take every four months, I was walking into anywhere from two to five different rooms filled with 20 to 40 complete strangers, most of whom did not want to be in that room at that time. And within an hour's time, I had to create buy-in. I had to share my enthusiasm for the work, knowing that most of my audience was skeptical, if not outright resistant <laughs> to what it is that I was gonna be talking about and sharing over the course of the next 15 weeks. So you wanna talk about a hard sell, that's it, yeah. right? And you wanna talk about being able to, to find constructive ways to listen so that you can write outward from that. I don't know if there's any greater crucible, right? Than having to, to, to get through that experience and just to know that's part of it. Every four months, it, there's a new cycle. There's a new 15 week opportunity. You have one hour. And at the very start of that, to connect with 20 to 40 or more people, most of whom have had a really bad experience with what it is that you're going to be talking about and dealing with. And so I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm very, very heartened by the retention rates that I've had throughout my career. The, the, the notes, the, the former students who are still in touch that continue to share their success it is extraordinary just to see those ripples out in the world. And that's not my voice that's being echoed back to me. Each of them claimed a space for themselves and have gone out into the world and done things with that. Um, and it's, and it's, it's an extraordinary experience. Now, having said that, one of the other things I think that's really important to acknowledge, and I can't believe it's taken me as long as it has to get to this point. And you know, here's the plug for the work that you and I do. Not everyone can write. I think one of the assumptions that we, we bring to this, and particularly in an academic context, is that you just need to do it often enough and you're going to be good at it at some point. It's going to click. You're going to be able to write effectively. And the truth of the matter is, it's really hard. It is really difficult to do. And not everyone not everyone winds up working, right? Their brains aren't wired to work in that particular way. They excel in other ways, right? They're experts in things that to me are, you know, on the verge of being magical because I don't understand them, Absolutely. right? Writing is difficult and not everyone, even given the type of rigor that you and I went through in graduate school can become expert at it. That's not the way it works. And so, I, I want to really underscore that point. 
because I think that there's a lot of frustration and there are a lot of misconceptions. A lot of people are thinking, why am I going to outsource this? Why am I going to pay somebody to do this? Anyone can do it. I just type it this right here and I post it here and the business is going to come. The fact is it's really difficult to engage in the level of emotional intelligence, right? To, to be empathetic enough and to also have the skill set in place. Again, this gets back to the art of copywriting and content writing. Not everyone can do this, even given practice, even working at a leading agency. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you just do it and you develop the intellectual muscle memory and it all comes out well in the end. It's really difficult, this work, and it's even more difficult when the end goal is to connect with people, right? It is really hard. And again, I think you've, you've said this very well, to walk it that far back, right? To learn something well enough so that you can explain it to somebody who is not an expert in it, who in fact may have what to, you know, themselves may seem like dumb questions. I think this is why it's really important. There are no dumb questions. Start at the obvious is one of the things I say over and again when I'm teaching and when I'm first starting to, to, to speak with clients. Let's start with the obvious and we're going to go from there. And what you're going to get from me, what you're going to get from, from Olivia, you when you're working with clients is somebody who's going to be able to take it as far out as it needs to go in order to be able to walk it back far enough so somebody with those obvious questions isn't going to feel intimidated, isn't going to feel alienated, isn't going to feel like everyone else in the room, everyone else on the block knows how to do this already and I don't, so I'm not going to ask the questions. And, and again, you know this from all of your work and, and all of your listeners know this. If your clients aren't asking questions, you can't give them the answers you know they need, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I mean, talking about that, I, that's one of the things that, um, you know, you mentioned that we add value in a way that uh, we are both, we are the expert at writing, but we aren't the expert in financial services, which is allows us to bridge the gap, which allows us to take, you know, the high level information and bring it to a level that, you know, like you said, um, helps, you know, draw the attention of the people who are looking for that information and presents it in a way that's digestible uh, and not too highfalutin, not too filled with jargon, not too, you know, it's like the more, and I feel like this way in my own profession, right? When I first started my business, I felt like it was really easy to describe what I did to people. Yeah. And the more that I learn and the deeper I get, the harder it is for me to translate that to people. I realized this. It was so good at it in the beginning because I was still up here. And now that I've gotten better and better and better and learn more and more and more, when I'm trying to tell, you know, somebody in who's not in marketing or um, not, you know, a writer about what I do, I find that it's, I'm, I'm doing, I'm, not doing as great a job. Um, so I think that's something that the advisors struggle with when they do try to write themselves is they're telling you all the nuts and bolts about how you do this conversion and where you put this money and how all of this, when really they don't care. 
They just want to know, you know, what are the benefits to me? How is this going to help my life? How is this going to help me reach my end goals? And that's where we come in and say, okay, we don't need that 70% of the the process. We'll we'll go with this 30% and then the rest is going to be, you know, client focused or whatever the piece is about. But, um, you know, I, I, so I sympathize with advisors in trying to communicate, you know, their value and what it is they do. And in you, sometimes you just need someone else to do it. And I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot. I have to bring this up. It all, no. But this morning I was thinking, cause you know, I was mentally preparing for our conversation and I was yeah. thinking about how, what we do is a lot like, now you might not like this, but <laughs> it's a lot like acting. Right. So we have to put on when we are ghostwriting for a a client, we observe them, we listen to them, we read their other content that they're, you know, proud of or whatever, and like the tone and like the voice and style and things like this. And we basically take on that character and take on that voice and become them for that hour or two or whatever it is that we're working on their piece. And sometimes, you know, it's funny, I've told another advisor, like, it's like pre-gaming, you know, if I have a lot of articles to do, I'm going to move from one advisor's work to the next. Sometimes I've got to go listen to them talk or, you know, listen to a video that they sent me or read an email that they sent me to get back in their character and to be able to take on that voice. And I think that we have more to say here. So what you, you go ahead. Well, what we're talking about here is is authenticity, right? And this is one of those buzzwords, and and it's it's a buzzword. I think Anthony Bourdain said this very well. Uh, we want to be cautious about it, precisely for the reasons that you're pointing up, Olivia. It's it's there is a certain level of performativity, right, in the work that we do. But I don't want to confuse authenticity with persuasiveness. And I I don't want us to to make the mistake of creating a sort of one-to-one ratio here. Because we're writing for clients does not erase their own authenticity, right? And I think you've given a great analogy in terms of our conception of performance and of actors doing their work. We're really not, and again, we were talking before we we started recording about scripting and and how you and I both desperately long (laughs) for a script. (laughs) I think we both more than anything, because we both have notes. I was taking more notes as you were speaking or exactly. So we are surrounded right now by all of this writing. And in fact, we were in the chat earlier I don't think we can, as writers, I don't think we can help ourselves because I I will speak for myself here. My better angels rest on the page and on the screen. That is where I am at my most articulate. That's where I'm at my most articulate for clients. That's where it happens for me. And that has always been true, right? Since I first made my, my first book as a boy of like six, Right. It has always been that that is where my better angels reside. And and so I know you and I both are gritting our teeth as we go through a conversation 
that we both have all of these notes for. And I know, I know. you know, our, our debrief afterward is going to be all of the places that we didn't get to and all I of the know. things we didn't say in the ways that we wanted to. But having said all of that, we're not putting words into the mouths or on the, the, the tip of the pen or at the fingertips of our clients. We're not feeding them material. What we're doing, and, and again, I think you've said this exceptionally well, is we are listening outward, right? It starts here. All of our writing, all of the best, most effective writing starts here and then moves outward. And I think that that's where there may be some confusion or some, some there, there may be some misconceptions. We're not handing our clients material for them to puppet, right? What we're doing is we're listening to them. We're listening to their clients, their audience, their prospective clients, right? And we can do this. I, I, know, I, I know you do as well. I live on LinkedIn, yeah. right? So I am constantly listening, but I think it's also helpful to go to Yelp. I think it's helpful to go to other social platforms like Facebook just to hear and to read how the people you're trying to reach are communicating so that we can work together to convey that. Because as you said, if we are writing, we have to know our audience, yeah. right? That's just part of, yeah. of rhetoric. Yeah. We have to know our audience and we only can know our audience. We can't imagine them. We have to listen. We have to go out and, and, and look, who is the person that you're trying to connect with? I mean, that's one of the, the obvious questions that I ask prospective clients. Who, who, are, who are we trying to reach here? And I don't mean a hook. And I, 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 this is something because the work that you and I do has everything to do with using our words. And so I think we need to honor that by really pushing back. And again, I, I, I said at the start, I wind up relying on buzzwords and catchphrases as much as the next person. Why? Because that's what our audience is using. That's who the people we're trying to reach are using. But I do want to say there are instances where it's important for us to push back. And for me, that's one of them. I'm never in my work going to try to hook anyone. And to be quite honest, I don't want to work with anyone whose goal is to hook anyone. I'm not interested in casting a line and reeling anyone in because if we stick to the imagery here, right? And this is not, I love to fish. Don't get me wrong. Right. Yeah, love it. Grew up doing it on the lakes of Michigan and up in Canada. Absolutely love it. But here's the thing. If we just stick to the imagery for a minute, what we, what we realize is when we say we're trying to hook someone, let's create a good hook. Yeah. That hook is a barb. Right? That's a sharpened point that goes through your cheek. And then if the fishing is really good, there's a fight involved. Right? I don't want to create contestation. I don't want to create fights with my work. And I don't want to hook anyone. Right? right? What I want to do is I want to create connection. I want to create invitation. And that's one of the things that I would suggest we want to do a better job of in our work. We're not trying to hook people and reel them in because that's short term, right? Yeah. Again, your listeners know that. That's, I, I landed the client, right? Well, good for you. That's great. And I'm sure that that's in the short term going to be lucrative. Yeah. But a year from now, 
five years from now, 20 years from now, have you connected with that person so that they've become a brand advocate for you? Are they going out and selling for you? Are they going out and doing the thing that we all want to do and everything we do, word of mouth, advertising? Are they advocating for you? Are they telling other people, hey, not only do you want to work with this person because they're really good at what they do, right? Not only are they going to help you maximize your money, right? And make you stronger and more confident in terms of your financial life. They're a good person. Yeah. <laughs> they're doing exactly. good work. They actually, yeah, they actually care. And here's one of the things, again, that I'm hearing as I'm doing the listening that I'm doing. I'm really interested. And again, this is not to, to, to exclude any demographics, but I'm just curious. And this comes from my being in education as long as I have been. I'm always curious about what's coming next, right? Who's coming up? Who's going to take it over, right? Because for all intents and purposes, you and I are, are I think, in the same demographic in terms of age. We've, we're kind of at the tail end of having our shop. Yeah. Right? It's all about millennials and it's already all about Gen Z, who, as of this past year, had over 300 billion in purchasing power already. These are kids who are in high school or are moving into college or starting to move into the workforce. 300 billion plus in purchasing power. Wow. And I think the statistic is something like 70% or more. Do you know what one of the biggest drivers for them is in terms of making decisions about where to spend that money? They wanna work with people, and with companies who care. Compassion is one of the biggest drivers for the generation that is already starting to take control of our economy and financial services in, in terms of, of spending power. What do they want? They wanna work with people who care. That is so deeply important to understand, to recognize, and again, not in a way to try to hook anyone or to play to the field, but to really examine, to do what, what David Sedaris's mother recommends in his essay, Us and Them. Really look at yourself and figure out, why do I do what I do? Why do I care? And how do I communicate that to people? Because that is what people are going to connect with. That's what your audience wants to know. Not just what you do, right? That's how people know us. They know us by what we do. They follow us. They become those brand advocates. They carry out our messaging when they know who we are and why we do what we do. And those are the types of, of messages that I want to get at and help clients convey because those are the messages that people care about, right? Yes, I agree. So, okay, I'm going to skip to the end of our notes because this is where we're at now <laughs> as far as where this is the topic that we've gotten to. So I'm just going to read to the audience what the question was going to be, because what I feel like it's, it's a good segue here into what we've been talking about. I was going to ask, whenever we talk about marketing, we have to acknowledge the nuances in the way that our market likes to communicate, what they expect in communications, and what resonates with them. And he's just pointed out, Gen Z, what resonates with them? Compassion, caring, good people. Of course, this is constantly changing, especially as technology forces our moods of, modes of communication to evolve. And recently, um, over, I would say three weeks ago, I found this poem. 
And I don't know how I came across it, but I'm going to read it briefly. I swear it doesn't take long. It's called Small Kindnesses. And I'll post this, in, I'll post a link to this in the notes. Fantastic. I've been thinking about the way when you walk down a crowded aisle, people pull in their legs to let you by, or how strangers still say bless you when someone sneezes, a leftover from the bubonic plague. Don't die, we are saying. And sometimes when you spill lemons from your grocery bag, someone else will help you pick them up. Mostly we don't want to harm each other. We want to be handed our cup of hot coffee hot and to say thank you to the person handing it, to smile at them and for them to smile back. For the waitress to call us honey when she sets down the bowl of clam chowder and for the driver in the red pickup truck to let us pass. We have so little of each other now, so far from tribe and fire, only these brief moments of exchange. What if they are the true dwelling of the holy, these fleeting temples we make together when we say here, have my seat, go ahead, you first, I like your hat. And that was by, oh, where's her name? Oh, this is a faux pas of the greatest degree. It is did not copied in my notes. I will link it in the captions, but I think um, what you and I talked about and what you were pulling on uh, just now is that there are, there's this need for connection right now, especially post-pandemic yeah. uh, when we were isolated from one another. And as the world becomes more virtually inclined to be yeah. doing business, uh, you know, they say the digital nomads and all of the, you know, yeah these groups of people, it, it just extended their way of life. And for older generations, it changed their way of life. Um, but regardless, it is the way of life. And, and there's so much uh, in each of us, this, this need for connection. And how do we do that um, in content? And I think that you were, you were getting to that. So that's why I wanted to pull this in. Well, and, and I think the, the, the piece that, that you've just read um, puts paid to that, that often misquoted line from W.H. Auden's poem, um, in memory of, of W.B. Yeats, poetry makes nothing happen. Um, I mean, I certainly have a particular bias, but I'm going to suggest that that isn't the case. And, and by way of answering your question and, and kind of giving another example, and I think that, that this lets us kind of think about the process involved in the work that we do and, and, and what it is that, that we're trying to do for our, our clients. Um, I know that all of your listeners have, have had some experience like this, and I will just share my most recent. Um, I was in the Norton Museum of Art, which is here in, in West Palm Beach, where I live. In fact, it's just down the street from me. Um, so I will walk down on uh, any given Saturday and just spend some time among the galleries. I, I just find that that, that recharges me and, and it, it gives me a window into the world. It's really, I mean, if you haven't been into an art gallery or, or a museum in a while, even if you're not really interested in art, just consider that it may be the case that you find yourself in a gallery surrounded by things, like just objects. I'm not even talking about paintings. I'm not even talking about con just things that have been in the world for hundreds of years. You may be standing in front of a vase that's 3000 years old. That's 
extraordinary. You want to talk about finding new perspective and figuring out why what you do matters so much and how to convey that to someone. You want to talk about the humility that people are really responding to as we continue right into the third year of this pandemic where Olivia, as you suggest, people want to connect with people being people. That's an incredible opportunity to really put your own life into perspective, right? How big it is, how small it is, how creative it is, how valuable it is. And it gives you an opportunity to really start reflecting upon how you can convey that. And we started this conversation with you talking about how much harder it has become as you have done more of this work entered further into the field, gotten to know the profession and the terminology even better, how much harder it's become. Standing in the, one of the contemporary galleries in the Norton, and this has happened to me around the world because I'm always in art galleries and museums wherever I go, somebody invariably will walk in and dismissively say in passing, my kid could do that. Whether they're standing in front of a Jackson Pollock or a Mark Rothko or a Grace Hartigan. There's just this sense of, are you kidding me? Yeah. Now here's the thing. That statement is absolutely true. If we're talking about a Jackson Pollock, your kid totally could do that. In <laughs> fact, as most of our, not most, if many, as many of your listeners will know, right? There is nothing more extraordinary. There is no finer museum or gallery in the world than the one you get to see every day that's on your refrigerator. There is nothing like a refrigerator gallery that features the work of our children. No one is going to even come close to being able to create a work of art that resonates more, that means more, that's more exuberant and impassioned than that of our six-year-old daughters, our 10-year-old sons, right? That's it. And again, if you, if you haven't thought of it that way, I encourage you to. You're sitting on valuable real estate. You've got a world-class art museum right in your kitchen. But here's the thing. That statement is true, except remember, it's an adult who did it. Jackson Pollock was not a young man when he was painting the paintings that people walk by and sneer at. It took him years. And this is true for every artist, every creative writer the world over since time immemorial. For work that is not strictly representational, right? An adult had to unlearn everything that they knew to get to a point where they were able to make it look that simple. And that, right, there's your challenge, dear listener. Yeah. Go try to get a headline like David Ogilvie's Rolls-Royce headline, right? And I'd like you to do it in, I don't know, what was your latest creative brief from the client you passed on? Give that to me by the end of business, yeah. <laughs> right? Today, if you could, please. It took Ogilvy, and, and again, that's an advertisement, that headline, that lead, I knew long before I came into this business because it is so good, so persuasive that it has permeated popular culture, right? It took him three weeks to come up with a headline 
That's not the entire ad, which is fairly text heavy, right? This is back when that happened a great deal. But that headline took three weeks of detailed research of kicking the tires, pun intended, right? Of doing all of the hard work of ideating, right? Which quite often, you know, gets pointed to as not doing anything. You're just sitting around, get to work already, right? Well, listen, in the case of Grace Hartigan, in the case of Mark Rothko, in the case of Jackson Pollock, the work that went into making it look that easy was so hard and involved so much time. They had to walk it so far forward that they could walk it back that far so that 50 years later, somebody could step into an art museum, into a gallery, look at that painting and just turn away and say, come on, my kid could do that, right? So that gets back to this notion of authenticity and it gets back to to the work that goes in to reaching the, the, the people that you're trying to connect with. Again, it's not about hooking them. It's about finding ways to tell the stories of who you are and how that drives what you do, right? And I think that it is so important to keep in mind that that is a reflective, that is a reflective process that takes time, right? It's something that is really, really hard to give ourselves permission in most cases to take. It took, I think, three weeks of my every day saying to myself, all right, the Warhol, Warhol, Warhol exhibit at the Lighthouse Arts Center up in Jupiter is closing on the 23rd of March. Yesterday, I think it opened in January, I finally went up to the Lighthouse Arts Center because that was the first point at which I gave myself permission to take four or five hours away from my desk working on on the various projects that I have going. Time is the most valuable thing and process is hugely important, right? The next time you walk into an art museum and you look at a Jackson Pollock and you have that thought, I think you're gonna look at that work differently now because you realize how much work went into getting to the point where it looks like a child could do it. I think the next time you look at that David Ogilvy ad, or any headline or any piece of content that really resonates with you. You're like, wow, that's so good. I didn't even realize I read, like, that is so good. I got to go back because I don't, I just did something. Like I clicked the button. (laughs) I started listening to the podcast. How did I get here? Right. That writing was so good. I didn't even realize I'd read it. Yes takes a lot of doing. And again, it's not duplicitous. We're not trying to hoodwink anyone. This is not a performance per se. What it is, is deeply listening, deeply connecting and creating the opportunity for dialogue to happen. Because as we look around in the world, I don't care what it is you're selling. I don't care who it is you're trying to reach. We need more people talking to one another so that we can make positive change happen. Thanks for listening to Get Advisor Fit with Olivia Looper. To learn more about Olivia and how her firm, Lexicon Content Development, can help you, visit lexiconcontentdevelopment.com. If you want to reach out to Olivia on LinkedIn, you can find her at Olivia Looper Lexicon. And if you'd like to follow Olivia on Instagram, you can find her at Lexicon Content Development. Till next time.